Welcome to the Braemar Life Skills Academy podcast. The world is changing faster than ever, and the world of education is too. Advances in psychology, biology, and a whole range of other fields have opened up new lines of thought about the purpose of school and how it can best serve a new generation of students. Join me on the Braemar Life Skills Academy podcast every week to explore these new ideas. In our last episode, I spoke with Ms. Nicole Boyce, the director of our art department here at Braemar College, about creativity, the role of creativity in and outside the classroom, and how creativity can be used to improve both the lifestyle and the success rates of our students. Join us for our next episode, where I'm very excited to be joined by Ms. Alexander Malinin and Alexander Simpson, comparing their experiences of international study and discussing strategies for success that have helped them in their education. Uh, welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for joining me. If you don't mind, could you please just take a few minutes to tell the, the listeners who you are and uh, anything that they should know before we jump right in here, uh, understanding the student experience, the international transitions to, to Braemar College and what it's like being here on a day-to-day basis. I'm going to start with, with my friend Sasha Simpson. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Mr. Elsie. Uh, I'm Sasha Simpson. I'm the soon-to-be alumni of Braemar College. I was born in New Jersey, but I've lived in Canada for about a decade now. Uh, Braemar has been a very amazing chapter of my life. It has turned me into the man I am today, quite frankly. I know that sounds quite trite, but it is true. And I'm just simply very happy to be here. Hello, hello. I'm, I'm Alex. It's a bit confusing with the names, but um, I'm the one born in Russia, um, and... I've grown up in Russia. I lived there until I was seven. Then I moved to Europe uh, and somehow ended up in Canada. And I don't regret it. It's been a very lovely time here. Both these uh, young gentlemen have come to us uh, with very unique journeys. And that will be the main focus of our, our podcast today, trying to understand the many different ways that we can arrive at such a similar position, not just academically, but in terms of lifestyle and life outlook. We're going to get to all of that. But I do want to make a few caveats and and, uh, say one special thing uh, here for our friend, Mr. Simpson. The first caveat I want to make is uh, it's it's a little tough being the the quote unquote adult in the room, the the host of the podcast, and being the least well dressed gentleman in the room. Uh, guys, thank you so much. But it should be said, especially Mr. Simpson, this is not an unusual outfit for you. The the blazer, uh, <laughs> button down, and tie has become something of a daily feature. Walking the halls here at Braemar, we're going to go ahead and give the maybe the year's award for best dressed to to Mr. Simpson right now. But this wasn't always the case. So before we jump into the serious stuff, tell us, when did this fashion transition take place? Wow, I appreciate the question. But uh, years ago, uh, back when I first started Braemar, I was very much the hoodie, leather jacket, and jeans guy. I saw Joey Ramone once, and I thought, oh, I want to do that. It looks cool. But uh, during the pandemic, uh, when I couldn't really be out in jackets or whatnot because I was staying at home in sweatpants, uh, I came across old pictures of my father from the 1960s in England. And he was a bit of a teddy boy. He had this bright pink blazer. It was the worst thing I had seen in my life. But it's Or, or the best. You know, I'm still debating that in the back of my mind. And it was a with a yellow tie and a blue shirt mm. for a party. And I Classic. thought, wow, that's fantastic. I have to do that. And my next uh, sort of inspiration for that 
was just a general interest. I thought, you know, these things kind of look cool. I'm getting older. Why not just try something? It's my last year. I don't care what people think of me about it. It might seem very boorish and uptight, but, you know, I want to try it. So I gave it a shot, and it actually quite took off. Uh, people gave me a lot of compliments in the halls, and I was kind of surprised it was, you know, so well-received. But, uh, you know, I still, every now and then, get back my old leathers and look like Joey Ramone. They're good looks to bounce back and forth between, keep <laughs> people on their toes. And what an interesting example of how we become, especially during this time period in your lives, those those adolescent years when, in case you haven't been told this already, you will undergo more changes and, and in volume and um, impact than ever in your life. And that doesn't mean you can't continue to change later. And I'm sure, sure you will, but it's been really cool. Mr. Simpson, uh, having you here at Braemar, uh, for the past several years, uh, I've been lucky to teach you and even luckier to, to help to supervise and work with you, uh, on student programs throughout the, the, at least the last three years. Um, and now happily for all of us, we're all very proud. We're thrilled uh, to hear just this past week that you've been accepted to the University of Toronto, just outside those walls and across the street, not making a major geographical change. <laughs> Your commute to school is going to remain much the same. Thank God. But wow, what an accomplishment. Let, let's just say a big Braemar podcast. Congratulations to Alexander Simpson, uh, who will be joining the University of Toronto uh, next year. Definitely, How's that feel? Oh, well, I'm truly flattered, uh, first of all. But uh, it was a massive weight off my shoulders mm. initially. Uh, I had always wanted to go to the University of Toronto. When I was younger, I used to just walk around the campus. You see, you see all these great buildings. There's a mix of the new, the old. And I'm all about the hi history and whatnot. So I was very interested. And uh, when I first came to Braemar, I already had it kind of in the back of my mind that I wanted to go. But I frankly didn't actually have fantastic grades uh, mm. in grade 9 and 10. I was mostly rocking an average of 60s and 70s. Uh, I don't know if it was just excitement or apathy. Could have been a mix of both. But, you know, when COVID hit and I started thinking more about my future and, you know, those dreams I had of being an oncologist or a historian or something in the middle, I kind of realized, like, look, I got to start taking these things seriously or I'm going to be kind of, you know, I might wind up somewhere I don't want to be. So because I was stuck at home all day, especially during the pandemic, I thought, well, there's nothing better to do except for homework and uh, why not make the assignments fun? Just mm. kind of put my own twist on it. And that had mixed results, of course. Some teachers are more, you know, they want to stick with the rubric, and I might have broken the rubric out of just, you know, interest in changing the assignment a little bit to make it a little, maybe a little more personable or a little more fun. But, you know, actually, most teachers were very supportive of it, and they enjoyed the sort of flair that I might have added uh, for better or for worse. So when I started taking my studies more seriously in grade 11 and 12, uh, my confidence was up. But I actually, admittedly, wasn't really expecting to get accepted uh you hear all these horror stories about university of toronto being the u of tears instead of the u of t or mm. you know people get declined even though they have 88 percent averages which was uh, uh which was i wouldn't say necessarily disheartening but more just sort of a thing in the back of my mind and of course parental and friends pressure and you know the old thing like oh you sasha you should go to u of t you'd be perfect there you gotta go like i don't want you at queens i don't want you at mcgill i want you at u of t and I wanted myself at U of T. If I wanted myself at Queens, I would have chased that dream too, but I wanted myself at U of T. So when I saw that acceptance in my email, I kind of lost my comp mind. 
<laughs> I started screaming and laughing and the whole nine yards and it came down to scream at my parents and uh, the rest is really history. After a bit of paperwork and acceptances, I'm now going to be entering the September 2022 intake with a mix of anxiety and massive excitement. <laughs> Wow, great summary. Yeah, one of the only times where it's completely appropriate to run downstairs and scream at your parents. <laughs> I'm sure they love that. Um, there is so much there that we can unpack, and I'm hoping to over the course of uh, the next half hour or so. I want to get Mr. Uh, Malinin to jump in with us here. Before we do that, we should make it clear, both of the gentlemen sitting across from me are named Alexander, and that can be quite confusing. Uh, we've labeled this particular episode of the podcast the two sashas but for clarity's sake and i think this is how we address both of you uh, on a day-to-day basis mr simpson is going to be sasha uh mr malinin is it goes by alex right and prefers it alex you are a little bit younger than, than mr simpson but have very quickly adopted to my eyes uh, as a, an activities director here at braymar a very similar role very similar attitude, very similar outlook, coming from an, a, a very, very different background. Can you talk to us just a little bit about that background, uh, your academic beginnings, your relationship with, with your studies, and how you see yourself having come to this place of what I would describe as a really unique intellectual curiosity, a fire there to learn. Mm-hmm. This is a young guy who regularly comes to my office, not with complaints, not with requests, but with ideas. Right. And he's, right. he's on fire to talk about those ideas. So explain for those of us who would love to, to see more of this in the world, uh, how did that all begin and how did you get here? All right. So uh, my background is quite complicated and I wouldn't say that it was my spirit has been fostered in Russia particularly. Uh, it was after I moved outside of, out of Russia when I was seven. But uh, I can start with my first, second and third grade, uh, which I spent in a Russian school. Um, it was one of the best moments of my life uh, because I think everyone enjoys their time being a child um, and in you know careless um, I guess existence and uh, un, what is it, unconditional love from your parents mm. um, and I, because I was very small I, I didn't really perceive that all of the country was, you know the government was corrupt or this or that. Uh, all my life consisted of was waking up, getting an amazing breakfast, walking to school, uh, enjoying school time, learning Russian, learning, you know, uh, what third grade kids learn, not something very complicated, something, you know, that you'd enjoy. Uh, and and an amazing uh, homeroom teacher, uh, Dinara Sergeyevna, uh, that's in Russian, um, she was the strictest, strictest teacher in the entire school. Um, and I got into her class that everyone wanted to get into. All, all, all uh, parents wanted their kids to go into their class because when everyone else, well, there was this like the staircase that everyone, the entire, you know, that'd be the exit of the school. And everyone just ran down the staircase. Um, and when, when my mom came up to one of the guards like, uh, asking where I was, um, he said, just wait, you'll see her class, the teacher's class. And a- a- as, as he said that, the entire, the only class in the entire school, walking one step at a time, formally like this, hands hands behind their backs, mm. <laughs> down the stairs and out. Uh, it was the most organized, <laughs> most uh, uh, you know, uh, respected class, I suppose. Uh, the teacher was incredibly, incredibly wonderful, uh, but strict. But that was uh, that was my upbringing. It was a strict um, uh, environment, I suppose, and it wasn't much for 
you know, there wasn't anything I was told that I have to believe in or I had to do. It was more of just a, 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 a you know, a concrete base for how I would act in the future. Right. And it, 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 it kind of built up my, I guess, character too, because that's where your character forms usually. It wasn't really a nice place per se, but I got lucky with the teacher. And so my mom moved out with my stepdad and left my grandma uh, and my father in Russia. We moved to a little country called Slovenia in Europe, which is uh, adjacent to Italy, to the right of Italy. Um, and it's only two million population, completely different thing. And now I was exposed to uh, a school in Ljubljana, which is the center of Slovenia, the, the capital. Um, and it was completely different. It was an IP school. and. I went there expecting, I don't know what I was expecting. I was very, I, I was very, mm, I thought of myself very highly because I came out of that school uh, in third grade. Saw myself as, as oh, I'm disciplined. None of these kids are. Because mm -hmm. I go into the classroom and then everyone's like running around, yelling, screaming. And I'm like, my teacher wouldn't have allowed this. <laughs> and then and then I sit down grumpily like this. Because we, we always sit down. I don't know if, if the people at home can see this, but basically you, you, you'd, you'd sit really close to the desk. The desk would basically squish you to your chair like this, and then you'd put your, your arms one on top of each, each other and then on the desk like mm -hmm. this and always face first. And, and then when you'd have a question, you'd raise your right hand up like this, and, and then you'd wait patiently. Let me just uh, intervene here real quick. Uh, Sasha, am I right that you, like me, uh, attended a Canadian public school previous to, to Braemar? Yes, absolutely. Did you ever see anyone sit in the way Mr. Mallon is describing? Oh, absolutely not. It was not as regimented as that. <laughs> not in the slightest. It was mostly just, uh, you know, you have, of course, the good kids. They were in their front row. And you had, like, the more maybe naughty or edgy or rebellious kids in the back row. I was always in sort of the middle row, mm. rather appropriately. Mm. Uh, and I remember we had our fair share of pranks. I mean, we paid attention, sure. But there was still... You know, a lot of paper being thrown left, right, and center, note passing. Uh, my sister's class was absolute hooliganism uh, by far. Uh, they would play pranks on the teachers left, right, and center. But that's, you know, the, that's the elementary system. It just is like, I'm not saying it was bad, but it was still, we just didn't have that regimented, uh, you know, discipline in yeah. our school. And I don't think it would have been possible, really. Interesting. I'm fascinated that as we think of our educational backgrounds, it's very, very clear that there are distinct people, settings, and events that we credit as having shaped us, having shaped our outlook. And you've, you've uh, Alex has named teachers and moves and locations that have shaped who he is. But we seem to frame these experiences along certain, let's call them binaries. And, and the one that I'm hearing right now, as you describe that grade three class, you're using words like solid, concrete, orderly foundation, right? And that is being associated with goodness in this case. And we've used the word hooliganism twice. Any <laughs> podcast where you can use the word hooliganism multiple times has got to be a good one. Oh, yeah. We've used that word twice as a way of describing what we might call, in a very binary way, the bad side. And isn't it fascinating that I think we would recognize the greatest moments of growth in our lives are often the ones that are coming out of the most chaotic settings, the, 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 one, the, the most uncertainty, the most challenging, 
is when we are most creative and when we most change and grow. And yet we, we, we give this positive connotation to order and, and to solidity. There's this yin-yang relationship between the chaos, the hooliganism, the, the students running down the stairs, your sister's class, Mr. Simpson, <laughs> right, if we want to use those examples. And then this other side of things that gave uh, Alex this real sense of identity and maybe even a little bit of superiority, a sort of narrative to go along that with your life. after a few months. It did, I'm, I'm sure it did, yeah, <laughs> as it tends to. And we find our way. But let, let me direct this to, to Sasha, and then I'll get Alex's thoughts on it. You said you thought that it might have been almost impossible to bring the sort of order that Alex is talking about to the classrooms that, that you experienced in, um, in your earlier life. Why is that? And in your mind, what is the, the correct orientation or the correct balance of ordering chaos in the education setting? That's a very interesting question. Um, I think simply because in North America, we have a very strong culture of individualism mm. and a very strong culture of the power of the self. And that's also directly correlates with inner, inner city life. All my uh, schools that I attended were deep into the inner cities. Uh, they were mostly in downtown or they were sort of just off downtown. Uh, I mean, for Toronto, I attended the downtown vocal music academy, but that was at Ryerson Community School, uh, which is only a few blocks away from here. It was adjacent to Kensington Market, and it had a very diverse mix of people. There are people from all walks of life. Uh, we have people who were living in Kensington Market, people who were living in these suburbs. So you can't really regulate discipline to that because everyone has such a different idea of what discipline is. Are we as regimented as soldiers or is discipline simply getting your assignments in on time? Right. Is discipline simply paying attention to class? Now, just let, let me, I, I can see him bouncing in his chair because when Alex has too many thoughts, they start coming out physically. <laughs> Alex, what do you think of what Sasha just said? I have too many things to say. Okay, so first of all, uh, discipline wasn't imposed by a tyrannical ruler. My teacher was... Uh, basically didn't work for the money. She had a rich husband who provided all, all, all of her pay, and she actually only taught for the pleasure of teaching, which was a very important uh, aspect of it. Uh, but she, Im she basically structured, how do I say, she put order into the classroom because she, she got every student to respect her. Respect and, and kind of her being this role, this idol in a sense where the kids looked up to her her disapproval meant the world crashing so every kid especially me would work extremely hard to gain her to keep her approval and never never break it um, i know one of the most devastating moments in my entire childhood wasn't me physically being hurt it was me getting a one out of five like a like a basically zero percent on an assignment uh, and her just saying she was disappointed in me. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And when you, when, when you respect someone, their, their opinion and their, their, what, what they teach and what they ask of you to do, you follow that, right? There's a mutual, you know, there's a relationship between the teacher and the student, each one, because no matter where you sat in the classroom, there was order. Wow. No matter in the back, no matter in the front, I was in more in the middle too, but it did not matter. And people wanted to answer uh, questions. People put their hands up. People wanted them to be picked so they could prove their worth to the teacher. 
sounds like there's a ton that I could learn from a teacher like this because you've described someone who does what they do for pleasure and yet creates this environment of energy, but also a lot of uh, discipline and respect. Definitely. And we're going for something like that balance, I think, in the most serious portions of our lives, whether it's in a classroom or in a workplace uh, or even in specific relationships and, and domestic settings. There's always this interplay of the new and the changing and the chaotic and, and what we might describe as fun, the, the unstructured fun and the, the discipline, the, the order, the seriousness, something that I think both of you embody uh, very nicely as students. You're able to play, you're able to enjoy, you're able to empathize, you're also able to knuckle down and, and get the work done when it needs to be. Um, let me just follow up with one question, then I want to come back to Braemar and your experience here at Braemar. But Alex, your teacher taught for pleasure, right? and yet she brought this, this incredible identity to the classroom. Did the students have pleasure in your classroom while they were raising their hand and, and fighting for those high marks yes, and for yes. recognition? I've, I've, I remember multiple, all of my friends, the entire classroom uh, wanted, just jumped in their seats. Like they would, they would do this and they would, ri they would rise up. They would do this. I did this a lot. And you'd want the you'd want the teacher so badly to pick you, you'd literally stand up and like jump on. It, it was it was amazing. Mm -hmm. Yes, they they had a lot of fun. And the best part is that even after the school ended, we had something called pradlionka, which just means in Russian, uh, uh, kind of, uh, and lengthening. I guess it would just meant after school activities because a lot of the kids' like parents extension extension or... kind of yeah basically a lot of kids' parents didn't come to pick them up at three. They worked around until five or six, right? And so there was another teacher who who took care of us after the, the 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 classes ended and it was only just it was like building legos writing stories playing games that was that was the playing aspect of the day and so not only did we enjoy learning in the conventional sense and proving ourselves but we also got to play and so we weren't really starved of recreation it was a really nice balance where we both we enjoyed both both kind of time periods um but it it, it 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 was a good balance that's that's what i that was aiming for at least i love that and in as much as we pursue goodness success health in in a number of different areas of our lives it seems that the answer always lies in that that middle way that balance right um sasha any thoughts before we jump into to braemar here not really, okay. uh, but I'm just thinking about the staunch contrast, really, because I remember there was never really an encouragement of being competitive in my school. There was never an encouragement of wanting to raise your hand up because most of these kids were just here to, you know, because they had to be, not because they wanted to be or they were genuinely interested because they had to be. Mm. And I remember me and maybe a couple other students were very interested in our subjects, but we didn't like the way that they were taught, because most of our teachers, they weren't teaching out of passion, like Alex's teacher were. They are teaching for a paycheck, and a paycheck only. So their idea of teaching was to s stand in front of a, you know, a Bill Nye the Science Guy video and let him teach for us. So I remember a lot more self-learning and a lot more just having to buckle down and teach myself or help my peers or we sort of lean on each other to learn. Wow. Uh, it wasn't until, I'd say, grade 8, I had this great teacher, uh, John Wynn. Uh, he was a young guy. Uh, he wasn't paid much, but he was very passionate about teaching, especially the sciences and mathematics. And 
I, and he got, got me into biology and evolutionary biology. And I never got, and I got, never really got the opportunity to thank him for it. And I really wish I did, but he always was interested in teaching the students, even though his pay was abhorrent, he was always interested in teaching the students, but he was also a very stern guy. Mm. He was this short little man, but a very stern man. And, uh, Alex's stories reminded me of his classrooms where, you know, everyone was genuinely interested because he made it lively. He made it interesting. He wasn't putting on Bill Nye the Science Guy. He's putting on John Wynn, the evolutionary guy. So how many fantastic. of our our intellectual journeys begin with that one great teacher, that teacher oh, yeah. who gets us and, and who really fuels that fire? Uh, I shout out to Greta Croker, the great uh, history professor at the University of Waterloo. She was one for me. Um, Let's jump to, you just mentioned grade eight. You had a great experience in grade eight with, uh, with a really passionate teacher who was doing it as a vocation, not as an occupation. Yes. Say, right? It came out of his, his genuine interests in his life. Uh, shortly thereafter, if I'm not mistaken, I think two years later, you found yourself at Braemar. One year later, actually. One year later. Yeah. Pardon me. So you've been here with us for grade nine, 10, 11, 12? Whole ride. All right. Uh, and... So we have a great teacher in grade eight and then a transition to a very different school, a very different school setting from almost any school settings that I'm aware of. Here at Braemar College, we are primarily hosting international students. I believe this year we are hosting students from 27 different countries. The majority of these students are coming to us with English proficiency at a fairly high level to a, a complete fluency. Most of them are coming to us with multiple languages. Most of us, them are coming to us with uh, a massively diverse background. And we all arrive here in the classrooms of, of Braemar College, some coming in grade 10, some coming in grade 11, some even coming for just one year in grade 12. And so it is a very, I don't want to call it chaotic, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scare Alex by saying it, <laughs> but certainly a not non-traditional, less stable, more dynamic setting than the vast majority of education settings can offer. What was that transition like from that traditional public school education to this one? And then I'm going to ask the same uh, question to Alex. Well, the first big change was seeing students leave after two months or six months that they left or graduating at random terms or not having the same teacher the entire day. Uh, my old school, there was only three teachers. At Braemar, when I first joined, there was at least 50, I swear. And I had no idea who was who. We, we should uh, be clear. There's probably 50 teachers and staff combined. Probably. I think we're, we're looking at more like 20 to 25 teachers. Yeah, that sounds more reasonable. I guess I guess grade 9 me was just that intimidated, though. So, and you see all these faces and everything like that. So, it was new. Another thing that was a big shock was the two classes for only a few months system. Whereas yeah. in my old school, you had a class for one hour each day all the way till the end of the year. So Braemar structure, there is five terms, uh, including a summer term. Uh, generally, uh, the academic year encompasses four terms where you take two classes or three, but generally it's two, uh, for about two hours and a half in the morning and about two hours and a half in the afternoon. Uh, about there, it changes a bit. And it's, that's a little more akin to a university education, mm -hmm. where it's more along the lines of a lecture. Now, the classrooms themselves don't function like a lecture, but they have the same sort of time slot as one. 
but as such, uh, a, a lot of students say we'll get their necessary credits, you know, earlier than say others, or they'll just be only here for a few credits. So students are coming in and out quite more frequently than say at a public school. At a public school, you are generally there for the whole four years. You're if a public high school, you'll join, you'll get your diploma, and you'll leave. Uh, but at Braemar, some are only here for a few years. Some are only here for a couple terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, some are only here for one year. Uh, I, kn- I know friends of mine who were here for mostly three years instead of because they did grade nine and say they're home countries. Uh, and I've known people who were here for only one year. Yeah, it's a, it's a very unique education setting. Upon arrival and upon your first few months here, what were the sensations? What were the major challenges? Uh, and if you remember any of the, the, the high points, the joys that came with that? Okay, so <laughs> the first few months uh, hadn't hadn't been very, um, let's say, joyful. So I don't really have any high points there. I think m- my most, well, the moments I most enjoyed are roughly now. But um, I think my biggest shock was the, the definitely the two classes instead of the like ten different ones in, in one day. However, I think it is better if you can. Mm, it, 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 that system is better because it doesn't really fracture your attention span as much as a traditional system because it, it takes you roughly around 30 minutes to 50 minutes to really get into whatever you're doing, your mm-hmm. mind to focus in, because there's no such thing as multitasking. Would you call it a state of flow? I'd call it a state of um, concentration. So challenging at first, a major change, totally different structured school, I assume uh, surrounded by classmates, many of whom are from places that you, you likely haven't spent too much time thinking about or, or researching. And that's certainly been the case for me, teaching students regularly from countries that I have to do my research on when I meet them. But uh, you talked about a lot of the pleasure, a lot of the, the success having come kind of in the second half of your experience here. Where do you see that turning point having happened? And what, what do you credit with the the more enjoyable experience you've had in the last several months. All right, so I think this this kind of aligns with um, uh, I don't want to really call it the Pareto principle, but I'm not calling it the Pareto principle. That's what it's called. But okay, so basically, it, it, it's kind of like a graph where it, it slowly slowly rises and only towards the end it really shoots upwards. Right. I think the reason I really didn't enjoy my first half of the year was because I was first very homesick mm-hmm. and I had a bunch of other problems that came from being homesick and my inaction in in the the whole education, I suppose, because it, it was really easy for me to fall into. And I did fall into this uh, whole thing where I'm sad. I don't have any friends. Uh, I'm homesick. Um, a bunch of other things. I, I, I'm worrying about my homestay. I got... Uh, you know, all, all the all these sorts of things. So, uh, and then because of that, uh, it's easy to ignore the academic side of things. But once you start to ignore the academic side of things, then when that whole thing falls apart, um, the, the you know, it, it, it's easy to keep your room clean, main t- like through maintenance, bit by bit each day. But when the entire room uh, has been demolished and you have to rebuild it, way more difficult what so, a incredible metaphor and so i, I i've been I, i've been rebuilding that room for the past three to four months uh, ever since it's complete collapse uh, a few months ago and <laughs> so i rebuilt it and now it's looking very clean and orderly um trying to live in a minimalistic 
life in that room and and through my focus in in uh, learning and, and into the school and first and foremost being honest uh, to f first and foremostly to myself uh, because actually if you can't be honest to others you can't be honest to yourself right um, and, and vice versa belief in truth mm -hmm. right belief in truth isn't uh, like an arbitrary value it's something you have to act out to truly mm. believe in because belief is the actions right these um, are incredible insights and I, I want to try to capture them as much as possible but I also want to say how special it is for again correct me if I'm wrong a 15 year old yes 15 for a 15 year old to be realizing things that I certainly didn't realize until well into my adulthood and in some cases I'm still in the midst of realizing it's at a big cost uh, mm -hmm. you don't you know are you sh because the thing is uh, you know enlightened people right um, do you really want to be enlightened because to be enlightened you have to go through the worst of the worst um, uh, you know, Jung said, um, a tree can only grow to heaven if its roots reach down to hell. Yeah. That's my favorite quote by him. Um, and it's, it's, it's very true. And it's also very terrifying because what exactly is at hell, right? Metaphorical, of course, not, not like, <laughs> not the, the, the <laughs> yeah, magical not Dante's place Inferno. where people's, you know, pip, you know, for, forget it, forget it. But basically, uh, hell and heaven are, are basically real things you can, um, kind of get to in your life um, and th you know through I guess it, it's not really getting to it's more of to the path to because you you never really achieve heaven just how you don't never really achieve hell but you surely inch closer and closer to it through certain actions so yeah you you talked about um, what I would describe as a negative spiral that you were in Definitely. in that in that first let's call it the first third of your mm -hmm. education experience here which resulted in metaphorically the room being an absolute disaster oh, yeah. zone, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And I invited to Satan be clear, to come and destroy some of the walls. Wh so. When we when we say the room is a disaster, this is of course this can be of course literally true, and <laughs> uh, yes, many of us yes, as teenagers exactly. uh, can sympathize oh, yeah. with that. We've all had disastrous rooms from time to time, but it also represents a sort of mental state, uh, a state within one's life, where the the ball is no longer rolling and so you've got to generate this enormous amount of energy and effort and time to get the ball rolling again as you said if the room's already clean pretty easy to maintain i'm, I'm, I'm mixing metaphors here mm -hmm. but if the ball's already rolling pretty easy to keep that momentum going i want to add to that metaphor not only is the ball stopping rolling you're actually you're sisyphus you're pushing that ball up a mountain we knew we were going to get some absurdism in here i knew albert Camus would pop his head out eventually you, you you're as pushing he, that boulder up that mountain and that mountain is infinite uh -huh. <laughs> there's a peak but then there's also another mountain yeah there's infinite mountains they're not it's not necessarily you know because i always uh, imagined it it was like a series of mountains on a flat plane but it's not really it, it, it's kind of like a it's constantly going up but there's always more mountains for you to climb and yes. so w when you kind of let when once the ball once you let the ball stop, the ball exerts more force back onto you, and then it rolls all the way downhill. In the great immortal words of Albert Camus, we must imagine Sisyphus happy. Yes, right? definitely. And it's so cool to see a 15-year-old who's begun to learn that this can happen in their lives, that you can be on a spiral downwards towards hell, as it were, or just into a a less purposeful life, a less meaningful and fulfilling life, let's say. And through certain interventions, strategies, uh, situations, 
you can reverse that course. And I, I think through miracle, <laughs> perhaps through the miracle. Um, but we hope that education is, is part of that miracle. And we hope the experience at Braemar has been, uh, as I've witnessed it be uh, for you. Sasha, you've been with us here for four years, soon to be the end of your journey at Braemar. You've been a huge part of the development of our student programs, many of which are intended to serve exactly the function that Alex has just described of helping a student to get over that first mountain of culture shock, right? The alienation, the loneliness, the lack of belonging and recognition that accompany moving to a new place by yourself and not seeing yourself represented in most of the, the places you look. You've helped to develop these programs. What's that experience been like and, and how have you seen it changing the lives of your peers, maybe even yourself. Talk about some of the programs that we've we've developed together in the past and what they've done. Well, uh, well, uh, in terms of developing uh, the student programs and all those lovely things, uh, I do want to say that first of all, it made me a very much more an empathetic person. Mm. Uh, it really made me realize that, you know. I thought I had things hard. These kids are leaving their entire homelands, everything they knew just for a little bit of, just for education. Mm. And I first found that very inspiring, found that very humbling in a way. And I thought, well, I don't have that. I never had to endure that. I might've left New Jersey, but I was eight. It didn't matter. So I kind of made it a somewhat self-righteous mission of myself to, you know, maybe I should, maybe I could try and help these kids out a bit, you know, if they're homesick or if they're, you know, missing home or give them outlets to express themselves because, you know, it's important to express it, even if it is just blatant homesickness, it's important to recognize that, especially in international school. Our first, and I'd say one of our very successful programs that we utilize that sort of philosophy was the newspaper, mm. the through 50 different name changes, it wasn't 50, but it was quite a few, uh, we finally settled on the Braemar Bugler, uh, which uh, had wonderful culture pieces, uh, pieces about home, art. Uh, Let me just give one bit of quick background here for listeners at home. Uh, Sasha's describing the school newspaper, perhaps something that is also going to take advantage of this new podcast form and this new state-of-the-art studio we got going here to provide some audio content in the future. But Sasha was the motivating force behind that the the first release of that paper. I think you named it. I believe you were the uh, editor in chief and the writer of uh, the main story or the main article in each one of the editions that we've put out. Yep. Um, and I, I I can say quite comfortably and quite confidently that that newspaper would never have existed. It would have never gotten off the ground without your efforts. So sorry to cut you off, but just, just to explain what that early process was like, uh, continue. Yeah, so the Bugler was a massive success. Uh, I think our best edition was the Christmas edition. I thought so too. Uh, because many of our students were able to express their old, you know, Christmas traditions, or maybe it was Kwanzaa, or maybe it was, uh, you know, New Year's, especially for the Eastern European students. And we had these great stories about old traditions around the world. And that was our best issue. Mm -hmm. Nearly everyone read it. And... Uh, and I think it definitely opened up a bit of conversation because often what would happen at Braemar, and uh, it doesn't really happen anymore, but it used to be that a lot of students would just gravitate to people of their, that came from the same country as them. The Russians would hang out with the Russians, the Ukrainians would hang out with the Ukrainians, whatever, uh, which is completely fair, especially if you're homesick. But I think uh, especially 
as the year goes on, people sort of branch off into a mosaic. All their friend groups become mosaics of Vietnamese or Ukraine or uh, Russia or a per- or Iran or anything like that. So I think that encouraging the stu- people to just kind of break free of their old nationality, not break for their nationality, but, you know, explore a bit. Yeah, extend. Extend. was a word that we used earlier. It was. Yeah. And just because only a few different um, ethnicities have been named so far in this segment, I also want to make sure that we recognize, because recognition is exactly what you're describing, some of the other ethnicities that play a major role here at Braemar. We have a large Vietnamese base. We have uh, Chinese students, uh, several from South American countries like Ecuador and uh, Colombia. Uh, we have Mexicans, we have Peruvians, we have Germans, we have French. Quite a few from Sub-Saharan Africa now as well. Sub-Saharan Africa as well, from Uganda and Nigeria and Tanzania and Kenya. Uh, we're lucky to be joined by two different teachers from South Africa. Uh, you mentioned Iran. Um, we have uh, Italian students. Now I've, I've gotten myself into a quandary because if I don't name one or two <laughs> that students are from, I'm, I'm going to get in a bit of trouble. Uh, I'm sure I've forgotten a few, but it is a, a massively diverse school what you've just been in the midst of describing is a, a, an articulated stage of culture shock, Yeah, I think, where, as I mentioned earlier, you look for representations of your identity everywhere you can go. And when you come to a brand new country, you often don't see them. And those representations of your identity could be uh, uh, words on a billboard written in your home language. Or it could just be what people walking down the street wearing the same clothes and looking the same and behaving the same as you. There's many, maybe it's seeing your favorite dish advertised at a couple of restaurants you go past. There's endless ways we see ourselves and our cultural identity represented. Difficult when you come to a place where that's not the dominant uh, cultural identity. And so that maybe that second mountain after what we might call denial or just just you know shock uh, is coming to terms with the fact that you will not be as represented, or you're going to be differently represented uh, here. And so we get the move towards the mosaic. Yeah. As you've said, this move towards establishing a social group and an identity that is far more diverse and extends in many more, excuse me, more directions than most young people would ever think of or have access to. Yeah, I, but I think the setting of Toronto helps in that regard. Toronto mm. is a multicultural, multi ethnic city. Uh, if you look hard enough, you'll find an example of every culture here. Uh, we are very proud of that. Alex, do you feel that when you're walking on the street? Feel what? The multicultural identity of Toronto. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't really pay attention to the ethnicity of or culture of Toronto. It kind of blends into one conglomeration of mm-hmm. just Toronto that I just label Toronto. It's a bit funky because the styles of buildings are all different. The The people are mostly all different. And it's just... Yeah, it's yeah, just dip- individuals. A different bunch of individuals. becomes normal. Yeah, I also have something to add. Um, yeah. uh, so when you move, uh, especially such a giant move from your, I don't know, from continent to continent, what you want to, to make sure you're not doing is that you're not actually still staying in the same place. Um, and this is what Jordan Peterson talks about in his book, because it's very easy to move somewhere, but still be in the same metaphorical place. Uh, when you move, you have the chance to be someone else, be someone new, reform your identity, become someone better. Um, if you move somewhere, like, f- for example, I can speak on this because I'm Russian myself, from Russia to here, yes, it's incredibly easy to just enact, act, act out the same culture 
in Russia with other Russians that bond together. However, that's no growth, mm. and that yeah, you do, you're, you're the same person. It's it's if you never left Russia, what's the point of coming here then? Interesting. There. Would you say that uh, Bremar insists on opportunities for change and growth? It gives you the opportunity to change and grow. Uh, it's definitely hard personally to make the first step and put yourself uh, into the discomfort. It's not just, just discomfort zone. It's the discomfort zone. It's yeah. so hard, so absolutely hard to keep pushing even when there's uncomfortable situations. Uh, you don't know what to say, uh, but just get into a new kind of environment. Uh, but I totally understand that when your language, like your English, isn't uh, on par, it's it's not what you want it to be, and you're ashamed maybe that you can't keep up the same uh, intellectual conversation with other people, that it's easy to revert back to your home language mm-hmm. and do so with other peers. But then again, you're only delaying that that future, that possible future where you are intellectually on par with your you know fellow students right. in English, right? And this is something... The, the staff and teachers of Braemar are, are, I think you'd, you'd admit, completely aware of. Uh, our students come to us, as I've said, at various stages in their English language development journey. And when you don't quite have the vocabulary, just for, through lack of access or lack of time to participate fully in the conversations going on around you, a very human instinct is to contract Right, to, right. to retreat back into the most fundamental aspects of, of your identity. And we offer, even just this year, we, we've started with the help of a few of uh, our teachers, the Cultural Culture and Language Exchange Club, CLEC, C-L-E-C, uh, specifically to meet the needs of students who are still in the midst of that English language learning journey, but who want to participate in right. the kinds of conversations with people uh, from all over the world like them. And that serves multiple functions. Uh, we're going to jump into a, a final segment here in just a minute, but I want to ask you both in in line with what we've just been talking about the last five to ten minutes. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll start with you, Sasha, and then I'll go back to Alex. Can you think of a single specific moment in your time at Braemar that really represents that transition, that change from uh, a, a identity that is holding back or not growing, staying the same, and uh, that identity, when it began to open up, when it began to extend uh, to the many, many different identities and faces and people of Braemar? Well, I think uh, the big one was humor, actually, and comedy and wit, and, you know, it's also a bit of slapstick. And I remember vividly, in grade nine English, my first term at Braemar, uh, we were doing presentations. And presentations are nerve-wracking for many students. They're like, oh, my God, everyone's going to judge me. People are going to think I don't know what I'm talking about. And there seems to be two types of students who do presentations. Ones who stay very rigid and just kind of tense up, and the ones who just kind of, you know, blabble for about 15 minutes and run away. Order and chaos. Order and chaos. Uh, To which I say, make order but live for chaos. But uh, the... Write it down, folks. uh, The... Uh, I remember once there was a very funny Russian student named Simon. Uh, he's graduated two years ago now. And it was English, and we're doing presentations. We're setting up the projector, and I'm about to go up and present the Jabberwocky poem, uh, an iconic English one. And I'm up there, and I'm getting excited. I'm getting ready. My buddy Dennis is being my hype man in the background. Like, you're going to kill it, man. I got you. And then the minute I get up there, and I'm about to recite, I'm about halfway through the Tum Tum Tree uh, stanza, Simon trips and d- cuts out the entire power for the presentation. Oh, no. 
And I'm just sort of in, you know, muscle memory mode. So I'm just keep reciting it. And I, and I turn around I'm like, oh, oh dear. Simon, you killed the power. And for some reason, that line just caught on. And it became an inside joke among that English class for the remainder of term to randomly say in the middle class, Simon killed the power and then shut off the lights. Isn't that cool? Like some some verbal artifact like that that may be meaningless in the moment comes to be this thing that a class builds its its group identity around? And it absolutely did because that little artifact of speech uh, basically became the inside joke of the classroom. And it and it made everyone way more lively. Everyone was talking to each other way more uh, via through that silly joke or notes we passed in class, uh, which reminds me, uh, this was back when the phone bin was a very common policy at Brain where right. you had to put your phones in a bin. But our teacher was far more relaxed and admittedly often let us have our phones for class. Someone discovered that everyone's airdrop was on. And I remember <laughs> for one period, everyone did nothing but airdrop the most hilarious memes or pictures they could find. And that really brought us together. I think that was a class that it. had the most open discourse because everyone could just talk about anything. And I learned so much from different cultures. And I made some friends there. Like, that's where I met my friend Dennis, who was my lifelong buddy yeah. the entirety of my brain, our career. To this day. To this very day. Uh, a friend of mine named Richard, a friend of mine named Hibbub, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, and I th- and to that, and I still think of humor as the ultimate way to break a barrier in that regard. And I think that was sort of the perfect example. It was just a silly joke. It was, it was hardly even a joke. It yeah. was a per- part of speech that became an inside joke, but it made the class infinitely more open. Yeah. Funny that inside jokes classically are not understood by those in the quote unquote, the outgroup, right. right? Even the fact that we call them inside jokes, we think of the terms of evolutionary psychology and how we are designed in, in so many different ways to identify the in-group, who is my in-group. And only through trial and error and practice and, and, and in some cases, uh, experiment and, and failure, do we come to expand that in-group to include new classmates, uh, a new city, a school culture, etc. Alex, what was the right. moment for you? Um, well, actually, my first period, well, I actually have a lot of experiences, but I think uh, in one case it was being humor, definitely the same thing for me. It definitely opens people, uh, opens people up. Uh, it's such an important lesson to learn. We do have a new student body coming down the pipe pretty soon. A new term begins next week. Right. There will be new students walking the halls. And in years to come, that will continue to be the case with each of, of the new terms at Braemar. As two young people who have been through Braemar's education structure have had what I would call a high level of success, both in and outside the classroom, I think having listened to the two of you talk for the better part of an hour now, nobody would be surprised to hear that you're both doing very, very well in the classroom. We want to give some advice to, to prospective students and students who may uh, come to fill your shoes in the future. So I've got a couple questions here. We're looking for short, rapid-fire, instinctual answers from each of you just based on your own experience. Hopefully have a little bit of fun here. So imagine yourself, maybe Sasha, we want to think four or five years ago. Alex, we can think two or three years ago. So you're talking to your younger self. First question, going to you, Sasha. What is your number one study strategy as somebody who literally just wrote their final exam of the term yesterday. If you want to remember a fact, turn it into a rhyme almost immediately that you'll remember. Uh, 
it's the ancient Mongols, uh, not the ancient, sorry, the 12th century Mongols used to give all their orders in rhyme, their military commands in rhyme, so that they would never be forgotten, and that way battle orders were correct. So if you want to remember a detail about something, make it a rhyme. One that That's I hilarious. made, one that I made in the 1860s uh, for uh, my own history love was in the 1860s, Bismarck made his mark by invading Denmark. And I'll and never you forget. remember it to this day. I remember it to this day. Yeah. So that's it. Man, I love talking to Sasha Simpson. And it's been such a pleasure having you wander into my office, uh, you know, a couple times a week over the last few years, because I always get a new fact like that one. The not ancient, no, the 12th century Mongols delivered all mil military orders in rhyme. I will be using that in the future. Thank you very much. I'm going to miss our conversations when I go to university. Well, hopefully they continue in oh, the future. Uh, next question. Alex, mm -hmm. you talked a little bit earlier about the room, the space. Right. Very right? important. Keeping a, a room orderly so that you can keep your mind orderly. Yes. Uh, give the new students coming in the future some advice about how to organize a workspace. Okay, here. Uh, I'll actually give this also more generally how to study properly. Okay. Um, so first, what you want to do is you have you want to have as minimal amount of things you need to study. Two pens maximum, two two of anything maximum. Throw out anything you don't use for longer uh, for longer than a week. Two, keep everything clean, no garbage. Three, keep your bed always made. Four, keep your desk away from the bed, facing away from the bed, never at looking at the bed because that conditions your brain to oh time to sleep and then you fall asleep during study time. Mm. Five, to have a study lamp, because when you have the study lamp, you turn it on when you study, that conditions your brain. Aha, study lamp on, mode, study mode activated. Okay, and then sixth, you want to have um, basically a technique you use to study, like the Pomodoro technique. I know a lot of people have heard it. Feel free to modify it, like the um, popular anime door technique, which is 40 to 60 minutes instead and a 15 minute break. And I think my last uh, recommendation is to have either noise canceling headphones, either earplugs or, or anything that would make you more comfortable studying in your room, anything like that. Make yourself tea, make yourself comfortable, put on lo-fi, make studying enjoyable, most important one out of all of them. Can't say that loudly enough. Make study enjoyable, make the space right. comfortable. Right, make the process pleasurable. I'm really, really glad we're recording this because I have a, f a feeling the listeners are going to need to rewind and, and catch those seven or eight mm -hmm. incredible points again. Uh, but what a cool time to be alive where all of these, I'm going to call them biohacks, are so available to us. Mm -hmm. Stuff that I'm sure you, you're aware of this. A hundred years ago when I was a 15-year-old, uh, <laughs> nobody was talking about this stuff. Nobody knew this stuff. No, like right. uh, the, the threat of blue light, how, how that operates on your, your endocrine system. Mm. Um, stuff like binaural beats and lo-fi music and how that correlates with more focus. Stuff like turning your desk away from your bed so that you don't have the mm. associations of rest. Nobody was talking about this 15, 20 years ago. And now it's becoming common knowledge. And we're seeing the effects of that. Very, very cool to hear you speaking so competently about that, Alex. Uh, we're going to go one more each. Okay. Excited. Sasha, you've selected the University of Toronto. You're excited to be heading there in the fall. Talk to the, uh, some new students about how do you select a university program? What's that process like and any tips you might have for it? Well, U of T is a bit strange. You're not allowed to pick your major until your first year. So your program is very much uh, not totally set in stone. It's easy to change. But I'd say, as an advice for picking your program, Pick something that's in between what you are best at and what you want to learn. 
do not lean towards the totally familiar, but don't throw yourself into the sciences if you're a humanities person. You don't want to, you know, wind up there either jaded and bored, nor lost and drowning. So I picked, you know, general arts and science. I have aptitude for both the sciences and the humanities, but I'm not fantastic at mathematics, and I want to improve that. And the arts and sciences program has all three of those, science, humanities, mathematics. Excellent. So... I have some familiarity. I'll be able to take biology and history and all these things I love, but I'll also be learning vector calculus, hmm. something I am not very good at, admittedly. I was going to say, those words terrify me. <laughs> vector calculus? Yeah. Like quantum, quantum mechanics. And Orbital mechanics, yeah. centripetal force. Uh, Sasha, are you familiar with the concept of ikigai? I the, na- uh, the name's familiar, but okay. not the concept itself. We can make this the, the subject of your next uh, research project. Ikigai is uh, a recognition of four major forces that might determine our our motivations and our direction in life. Venn diagram. Uh, Yes, exactly like a Venn diagram. Thank you, Alex. Uh, We have the force of what are you good at, which you just mentioned. What do you love? Uh, What can you get paid for? And what does the world need? And we Venn diagram between each of those four forces and we get things like our passion. Like when you talk about what are you good at and what do you love, the combination of those two things is your passion. What are you good at and what can you get paid for? The combination of those two things is your occupation. What can you get paid for and what does the world need? The combination of those two things is your vocation, etc. But so I think what you were advocating there is a recognition both of what are you skilled at, right? what are you naturally inclined towards, and... What do you have pleasure in? What do you desire? Maybe what do you love? So we're talking there about the, the, the Venn diagram, the middle section between those is your passion. Yes. Right. And is that how you would frame it? To a degree. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that it really sort of depends on what you're after. Are you after just the degree itself? Do you have a very specific career goal in mind? If you have something like, if you're dead set on being like an ear, nose and throat specialist or dead set on a lawyer you might need to modify that a bit but that's not to say you can't you know lean into your passion so you hear a lot of people say oh only go into stem you need to make money no 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 no. that is quite literally the fastest way to not only probably drop out of university but also to become a very boring and sad you know student so So you need to be authentically represented within whatever academic course you take exactly you need to be you need to be honest with yourself it might be true that you might make more money with a computer science degree, but are you really going to be a computer scientist? Mm-hmm. No. Then, you know, move yeah. on. Or in some cases, yes. But oh, yeah, we, absolutely. We but better be able to find myself. some fulfillment and, and some pleasure yeah. within that life, or else yeah. you're, you're setting a, but there a path are towards there are far doom. too many students in law or pre-med that really don't want to be there. I'm really glad you know that. Let me, uh, I'm going to jump back with uh, one last question for, for Alex before mm-hmm. we say goodbye here. In the last question, you talked a lot about uh, the habits that allow you to study well, biohacking. Uh, What are the most important general lifestyle habits that you've adopted and which you might recommend to help other students survive and thrive at any stage of their education? I'd say a very general rule is that, well, a lot of people have a conscience, right? A little voice or a feeling within them that tells them when they do something, if it is wrong, whether it's lying, whether it's, you know, anything really. Um, when you know you shouldn't be eating sweets or you know when you shouldn't be drinking, for example. 
I'd say, because that's, for example, what Socrates did. He followed that voice um, on, uh, you know, like religiously, basically. Uh, he thought it was a voice from the gods. Um, and that's partly why the Oracle of Delphi named him the, the wisest person. And so, basically, even if the voice told him, do this, very arbitrary, like, I don't know, walk to the right instead of the left, he'd still do it, no matter how, um, you know, nonsensical it, it might have seemed to be. But it, it's partly right, because partly your conscience isn't fully developed. The reason you have a choice not to follow your conscience is because it develops through culture and through your experiences and hardships. But that voice of the conscience or that feeling of the conscience is incredibly important. Um, secondly, how, how do you cultivate attention towards that voice? Basically, um, I, I'd say do the simple things that you know you're, you're doing against, against the, the will of your conscience. Like for example, I don't know, Sleeping in. Sleeping in, for example, or, or, or going to sleep late. Um, simple things that you could conquer to make the voice stronger mm. so that it can control more of you in a sense. Yes, it, you are. it's not like you're giving up your free will because you always choose to do it, but being more aware of the voice is always beneficial. But I think that's too general and not people. Not many people understand it. I think a, f a few things that would get people, would set their lives very straight would be work out, not an hour, not 45 minutes. Find out for yourself how much you're willing to put into making yourself uh, a more healthy person um, and make sure you improve that day by day, 1%. Um, and so for me, it, it was 30 minutes, and I still keep up the 30 minutes. And 30 minutes, I think, is a good balance because you don't need more than 30 minutes as long as you're working out hard enough. Work out, eat well, cold showers, um, Walking isn't really necessary. I'm, I'm more of a, a inside dweller. I enjoy sitting in my room. It's more uh, the outside is scary. No, I'm kidding. But kind of get that. that. Uh, but work out, eat, eat, eat good, sleep well. Oh, sleep is so important. If I get seven hours of sleep, my my intellectual capacity is around fifty percent. If I uh, compared to if I sleep eight hours, just one hour has fifty percent increase. Completely insane. And Lastly, I, I, is following that voice. So whatever you feel is wrong, like for example, let's say you're drinking alcohol when you shouldn't be, stop drinking alcohol. Um, and even though many people, because thing is, there's some some things that might seem nonsensical uh, uh, to others when you tell them, uh, I feel bad doing this. But then they will tell you, no, why do you feel bad doing this? You should be doing this. For example, it, it could be very well that they are right, it could be that they're wrong, though. Maybe you're in the wrong group of people that are advocating for something that mm. shouldn't be advocated for. Yes, what's, what's really great is that your conscience is formed when you're young. That concrete time in your life, like that I was talking about first, second, and third grade, that concrete time is your culture. The culture forms your conscience and, and develops it. And the thing is, your conscience doesn't go away no matter no matter how, 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 how deeply you can disrespect it, um, thankfully. You know, you can always get back on track. And so even how e even if the voice sounds nonsensical and sounds stupid, still follow it. Um, because you, you might find out that through following that voice, through living your life truthfully, through never lying to yourself and never lying to others, because telling the truth is an adventure, in the words of Jordan Peterson, definitely is, you might realize that those people weren't the right people for you. Telling the truth is an adventure? It definitely and is. And I think... Uh, common thread through what both of you have just said is 
putting a great deal of serious thought and attention into identifying an authentic self, an authentic inner voice, an authentic direction, um, even if we, we do also remain flexible and adaptable in the midst of that. Gentlemen, both of you have been instrumental in pushing the idea of this podcast forward. I need to say a special personal thanks to each of you for having made my time this past year, a very difficult year in education, much, much better, uh, much more enjoyable, uh, much more informative and, and challenging in the very best way. Uh, Sasha, we wish you nothing but the best and we have expectations of, of a very, very bright f future for you. Also very excited that you're going to be just across the street at the University <laughs> of Toronto because now you don't have any excuse for not coming to see us. Alex, uh, we're going to wish you well as well. Flying out, uh, I believe, is that tomorrow? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tomorrow so making too. another major uh, life transition going back to, to another country, hopefully with some skills. And I think for those who've been listening the last hour, obviously some an outlook that is going to help you to continue to pursue the wonderful, authentic self that you are. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Uh, any final words before we say goodbye to the folks at home? Uh, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. <laughs> It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Uh, we look forward to introducing more guests of, if we can manage it, equal quality in the future. Uh, all the best till then. And be sure to join us for our next episode. I spoke with my colleague James Olson about his strategies for personal development and how they inform programming at Braemar.